fun. Okay, hi. There we go. Good morning. Uh, Peyton asked me last week, the kids needed a few more minutes, and so uh, each Sunday, so we were going to try and give them a few more minutes and dismiss them a little bit earlier, so we forgot today, so I guess you know what that means. We're going to go a real long time to give them all the time they need. Uh, you can open to Exodus chapter 3. Um, let me just make a quick clarification here. Um, in English, anyway, there's many, many really good, faithful translations uh, to the original languages of Scripture. And it's hard to say who is doing what. And so I preach from the ESV, but that is not the only good translation. There's lots of good ones. But in moments like today, I'm going to stop. If you're not reading in the ESV, I might stop at a very kind of odd spot, just kind of in the middle of a little section. Um, and so there's no kind of right or wrong there. Uh, this is just people who, as they went through the translation committee process, they broke up text in places where they thought was natural breaks, and there's not always consensus about where those breaks should be. So when I stop at a place, if you're kind of in NIV or maybe NASB or something like that, uh, you're going to be like, that's it. Or maybe you'll be like, we're still going. I'm not sure which one. But it'll kind of stop in a weird spot, and that is okay. That's just the reality of, of different translations, uh, especially in English. There's just so many of them. So last week, we began the, the specifics of Moses' life. So if you're visiting this morning, we've just began a series in January um, through the book of Exodus. And, and I explained that last year when I was studying through this with one of my friends, every two weeks we'd meet over Zoom and kind of chat about these things. And, and the further we got into Exodus, the more I was like, man, this is so relevant and practical for our lives today. Is you have a people crying out to God because now, granted, their conditions were infinitely worse than most of ours, but they were helpless and they needed someone to intervene. And how often do we have that in our own lives? And then God's sovereign plan does not look anything like we would want it to. And that's probably true in our own lives too. Asking God, why the hiccups? Why the, why the occasional side journeys? And, and we're going to look at, over the course of these months, we're going to look at, there's some reasons for that. Sometimes it's because God is sovereignly planning things in a very unique way. Sometimes it's because of our own disobedience. And God has to correct us and move us forward again. And we're going to watch that as the Israelites navigate through the wilderness in a very strange way, and, and in our own lives, we're getting through our own strange wilderness as well. And so, we started to talk about Moses, and, and we're going to look at specifically his calling today. We're going to, we, we started by going through the fiery, fiery furnace, that's not right, the burning bush, that's what I meant to say, and, and Moses encountering God in this moment, and, and not sure what to do, remember his identity is that he's a Hebrew, but he was rejected by the Hebrews. Um, in chapter 2, he, you know, he obviously knows that he's a Hebrew, but living as an Egyptian, and he sees the Egyptians beating the Hebrews, and he takes matters into his own hands and, and kills the Egyptian to kind of rescue the Hebrew, but the Hebrew people reject him. And then he, the Egyptian people find out that he killed the Egyptians, and so now he doesn't fit with the Hebrews, he doesn't fit with the Egyptians, and so he runs off uh, fleeing for his life and ends up Midian. And in Midian, he, he finds a wife, and he, fi and he has a son named Gershom, which literally in Hebrew means an alien there. And so you have this identity crisis happening within Moses of going, man, I, I know who I was born, but I don't know where I fit. I don't know what 
is happening. And, and so God reveals himself in the burning bush and reminds Moses of his identity, saying to him that he is an heir. He is the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Identifying with his ethnic people group, with his people group that God is going to rescue from slavery. And the implication, which we're going to read now, is that God was going to use Moses in very kind of bizarre, crazy, amazing ways. And if you've read through Exodus before, then you know a lot of what's coming. But if you, if you haven't, there's so much that God's going to do through this one person. But the crazy part is, and this is what we're going to look at predominantly today, is when God calls Moses, Moses doesn't respond the way that maybe we expected he would. And perhaps what we're going to focus on in our own lives is that perhaps we don't respond the way that God should too. To God, the way that we should. And so for Moses, it's very specific. The, the calling is very clear. To you and I, maybe it's a little bit more general. We don't have a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible written about our lives or prophesying very specific things about us. But what we're going to look at is that you and I have received a calling and a very clear calling from God. The way in which we live that out, well, that's going to be up for uh, unique things in, in our unique conditions and situations. But we're going to end with that, and then I'm going to challenge you to consider, are we being like Moses and rejecting God's call or, or arguing about God's call? Or are we going to acknowledge that this is to what he has called us and this is how we're going to accomplish it? So let's read. We're going to read a big section today. Um, I didn't know how to break it up any easier. So we're starting at chapter 7 of verse 3. And we're going to go all the way to verse 17 of chapter 4. So here's what it says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and, have, and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up from the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this favor, sorry, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the flesh, like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, well, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth. And with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these things. You shall do these signs. So you can see. God approaching Moses and, and saying, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be at work here. I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to rescue these people, and I'm going to bring you along for the journey. Now Moses clearly has some, some challenges, but notice how it says God says to him, come, I will send you. He doesn't say, I want to send you. He says, I will send you. Here's what God's doing. Now, remember, one of the main themes of Exodus is God's sovereign plan and God working in the midst of his very imperfect people. I think this is a really, really important thing for us to consider in our own lives, is we are called to be obedient to God. We are called to do what is right and good. But just because we 
have chosen the wrong way at times doesn't mean somehow that God's plans are thwarted and wrecked. It just means you've made it a little bit more difficult for God, but he's got it covered anyway. He's going to continue to be at work through each one of us the same way that, he has worked, that he's working through Moses. Moses' first objection that we find in verse 11 says this, who am I? Kind of on a surface view, that seems like a very reasonable question, doesn't it? Like, who am I? I'm one, I'm one individual. Not only am I just one individual, I've been rejected by the Hebrew people. I've had to run away from the Egyptians because they're trying to kill me. And so who am I that I'm going to go back and I'm going to demand this? It seems reasonable except for the fact that is Moses going to rescue the people or is God going to rescue the people? God isn't saying, Moses, go and rescue them. He's saying, go and I will be with you. Now, here's the thing is you may feel underqualified to do something that God has asked you to do. As Randy said, we're going to strike up a nominating committee soon and, and someone may approach you from that team saying, hey, have you thought of serving the church in this way? And if your immediate answer is no, I have no abilities in that area, then you're probably not listening to what God is trying to do. First thing we should always do is go back in prayer and say, God, what are you calling me to do? I think sometimes we look at it like as, as long as I have skills in that area, then I will do that, rather than saying, God, are you calling me there and will you equip me to do that for which you're calling? So Moses goes, who am I? And God says, essentially, this is my paraphrase now, God says, doesn't matter who you are, Moses, it matters who I am. God is going to do great and amazing things. And God promises in verse 12 to Moses, in fact, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to rescue the people. I'm simply bringing you along for the ride. Will you be obedient? And will you do the things that I've called you to do? And will you watch me at work? Moses has a second objection. Okay. Okay, that's, I get that. You're going to do it. But who are you? So remember, Moses is a Hebrew. He's very well aware that he's a Hebrew, but he's grown up in Egypt, in the palace. This crisis of identity that we looked at last week is all there. And so in an Egyptian culture, how many gods did they serve? There's so many we don't even know. And most cultures, in fact, if you go into kind of the historicity of it all, is all cultures except the Hebrew people were polytheistic nations. They worshipped the God of this, the God of that, the God of this, the God of that, and so on. And so in that time, for Moses to ask this question actually is, is very reasonable in a sense because he's like, well, well who are you? Which, which God are you? Now this is probably one of the most interesting texts in Scripture for me and what it points forward to. God not know, or sorry, Moses not knowing who this God is. Well, who are you and how does he respond? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. If you look down, if you have footnotes kind of at the bottom, it might say something like, I am what I am or I will be what I will be. Now what's missing in English from this is when it's translated from Hebrew, the very lines of the text here reveal the, the, the four main Hebrew letters that we translate God's name as what? Yahweh. 
Yahweh is God's personal covenantal name given to the the Hebrew people, to the Israelite nation. And that's how he's going to refer to himself. And so in your Bible, if you ever are reading, it'll say God sometimes, and it'll say Lord sometimes. Lord with all capitals, but kind of smaller ones. Every time you see that word Lord, that's the word Yahweh that was written down. The promise that when they read that word Lord, they're to remember that this is our covenant God who has promised us that he will be with us. In effect, what God is saying is, okay, you want to know which God I am? Well, actually, I am the only God. I'm the creator of all things. I am self-existent and self-reliant and, you know, all these things that sometimes in our modern mind we wish, man, God, I wish you would have said this to Moses, but essentially that is what he's saying to Moses in a way that Moses could understand. I am. There is no other greater thing than me. In fact, I've created it all. This is a very personal thing. But I want to take a brief rabbit trail here because I think this is really important. Again, we always read the Old Testament with what in mind? We're looking to who? We're looking to Jesus. We're looking to the fulfillment of the old, to what the patterns and the unique things that are being spoken are trying to point us to. And can you remember a time when Jesus maybe says something similar to this? In John chapter 8, we have this. You don't have to flip there just yet, but let me give you the real quick context. One of the biggest arguments against Jesus in, in kind of modern times is that, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. He just inferred it. Well, it's just statistically untrue. Jesus claims it several times. He just doesn't say, I am God. He says it in other ways that his readers, that his hearers would understand because it was clear in their culture at that time. And so this is, if somebody kind of comes to you and goes, man, Jesus didn't actually claim he was God, you just point him right here, because he did. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and they're asking, who are you, essentially, and, and even more than that, and what authority do you have to say these things to us? And so in verse 58 of John 8, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? Does it seem like an odd grammatical sentence to say? What's Jesus saying? He's making very clear to the Jewish nation here that's questioning him. I am God. If you ever want to argue the Bible doesn't say I am God from Jesus, it, it does right here. It just says it in a Hebrew way, not an English way. He's making very clear to them that, that I have the authority because I am God. I'm his son. We are one together. And, and if you want to push back and go, well, how do you know that? Well, what does the very next verse say? They start throwing rocks at him to kill him for blasphemy. They very clearly understood he was claim on divinity. And they're like, man, we got to kill him. He's making crazy assumptions or, or crazy claims of his identity. interesting to me that in the beginning of the Old Testament, this is how God reveals himself to his people. And in the beginning of the New Testament, this is how Jesus reveals himself to his people. Again, I think we're supposed to note those things and, and see those patterns there. So God reveals his name to Moses, makes clear who he is. 
But not only that, he says, you're going to gather the elders. You're going to tell them that the one true God who has always been knows of your pain and is going to rescue you and specifically rescue back to the land of Canaan. He also says they're actually, those people, the the Hebrew people, they're going to listen to your voice. They're going to believe you, and the elders are going to join you, and they're going to stand before Pharaoh to say, let my people go. It's not just as though God goes, okay, here's who I am, but he gives them so much more. Here's who I am, and here's what I'm going to do. And here's how I'm going to accomplish those things. And Moses, you don't have to worry about this and this and this and this because I'm already at work within that. Commentator Kenneth Harris sums up this section by saying it this way. This signifies to Israel that their freedom from slavery is governed by the promises and purposes of the covenant relationship with the Lord. And it shows Pharaoh that the nature of his relationship supersedes any claim that he has on Israel. I thought that was a very profound line. It shows Pharaoh that the nature of this relationship supersedes any claim that he has on Israel. God is literally saying, Pharaoh, you think that you have all the power and all the control, but you're not in control. You have no claim on these people, and I'm going to rescue them. God's making very clear his plan of salvation. Again, if you read it, well, he warns them that he's not going to just let you go super, you know, simply. It's going to be a very big process, and, and I'm gonna, God says I'm going to have to display a mighty hand. And if you've read ahead or know the story, then you know there's a lot of things that God's going to do, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. But if you look in the last couple of verses in this chapter, there's a really interesting note that seems strange. Verse 22. He says, you're not going to go away empty-handed. They're not just going to release you and you're going to run out into the wilderness with nothing. In fact, you're going to plunder your captors. Does that make any sense? Like, that's very opposite, isn't it? Usually the people coming to do the capturing take everything from you. And even if they are going to let you go, they're not going to go, oh, here, you can go now and take all my stuff with you. It's not the way it works, and and so it seems like this is impossible. When we, the reader, read this, if you haven't read beyond, you're you're looking at this and you're going, God, how how are you going to do that? We'll hold that thought for a few weeks because we're going to see that exact prophecy fulfilled. In other words, what God says he's going to do, God is going to do. Now, real quick before we move on, in verse 18, you see this this, um, request, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Uh, has met with us. Now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Kind of sounds like he's trying to be like, oh, we're not actually going to leave. We're just going to go for three days and come back. I don't have time to deal with that this morning, but we are going to deal with that, so I'm not ignoring it. So if you read that and you went, that seems a little, you know, not quite what God is actually saying or what what actually is going to happen, we will talk about that when we get there. So the next objection Moses goes, okay, you're going to do it. Here's who you are. And, and actually, I missed this. How many times do you read the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How many times is God reminding Moses, here's who you are. You're one of my people. Over and over and over. So there's those two objections. And then he just says, okay, but they're just not going to believe me. Well, then why did you ask the question in the first place? 
right? Like parents, you ever had that where your kids ask you a question or they, you know, hey, what about this? And then you tell them and then they ask you another thing and you're like, well, why did you bother asking that if you weren't just going to listen anyway? No, just me? Okay. She says, they're not going to listen to me. Essentially, it's, it's all, it's all going to be hearsay. Is even if I tell them all this stuff, well, maybe they're going to think that I learned it or I heard it somewhere out in Midian. Someone knew the story of the God of the Hebrews, and somehow I, I know his name, but it's all hearsay. They're not going to listen to me. And what does God say? This is good. God, just like when Jesus is asked a question in the New Testament, and he never really answers that question exactly the way they want him to, God does the same thing here. They're not going to believe me. Uh, Moses, what's that in your hand? And you're kind of like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with everything. He says, a staff. Uh, Stuart writes this. This is the beginning of the development of the concept that Moses' staff symbolized Yahweh's power. A concept that culminates Moses holding up the staff at the Battle of Rephidim, which we're going to read uh, as a symbol of God's throne. And actually, all through that, you read several times that in the Ark of the Covenant, which comes later, what is inside? Ten Commandments and Moses' staff. And you're going to see these things happen over and over and over again. And so this is kind of a theme that we're supposed to pay attention to. Remember, anytime you read something where like, that seems like a strange answer, or that seems like a strange comment. Like last time, remember when Abraham fled Midian, and then what did he do? Sat down at a well. And you're like, well, why is that there? And then we tracked that pattern and looked at, at how God was working there. So he says, what's, what's in your hand? He says, the staff. Okay, throw it on the ground. Becomes a snake. And now, here's the thing. This is the one of the moments in this conversation with God where Moses is objecting, 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 you know, making excuses, reasons why he shouldn't do it. But, but he does listen to God here because the staff turns into a snake. He's fearful and runs away. And God goes, no, it's okay. Go back. And so he does go back. And I think that's worth noting. Is there is a sense of, okay, there's, there's some obedience here. Yes, there's some pushback. But there is some obedience here as well. So then God says, you know, here's a miracle that, that they're going to see. And you know, if they don't, it's almost like he's ready for his objection again. Like just that, that's the only sign you're going to do. And God goes, just in case you don't believe that sign, let me give you this sign too. And then just in case you don't believe that sign, we'll give you this third sign as well. And remember, we were told, or we were reminded to track this pattern of why does the blood, or why does the water in the Nile turn to blood? What did Pharaoh do? He threw all the innocent children in the Nile. God is saying, Pharaoh, even though very, if you, want, if you know Egyptian history, you know that the Nile was really their only source for water. And he's saying, the very thing that's keeping you alive, you are polluting with the innocent blood of my people, and I'm going to even take that from you. And we're going to see that in a few weeks when the various plagues come through. So we'll talk more about that then. So he gives them signs, and he says, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to show these signs to you. And, and you don't actually see kind of anything further than, than Moses immediately interrupting and going, okay, okay, I get it. You've, you've said this, but now here's the fourth problem, is I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of slow of tongue. Lots has been speculated over this verse. Did Moses have a speech impediment? 
was he not confident speaking to his own people in Hebrew because he probably grew up speaking uh, Egyptian? Well, not probably. He did way more. Would have, he would have known Hebrew. But there's so many kind of questions. And as I went down that rabbit trail in my study, you know, this scholar suggests maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. But here's what I came across from one that I thought was very compelling. He points out that Moses is making objection after objection after objection, even when God's solving his problems. And in fact, the very next thing he's going to say, which we'll look at, is I just don't want to do it after God answers this objection. This commentator is pointing out that the condition, the issue, was not Moses' tongue, but was Moses' heart. And he just didn't want to obey what this God was telling him to do. And so he was looking for any possible excuse. Was he slow of tongue? Maybe. Maybe not, but that's not the point. The point is that he wouldn't allow God to do what God was going to do, or, or, or at least was rejecting it initially. Through the rest of the old, uh, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we see Moses doing incredible things, incredible speeches, and while Aaron does go along with him, it's kind of like Aaron does a little bit of talking, and, and then Aaron becomes just his buddy beside him, and Moses just takes over. Why? Because God said, here's what I'm going to do. Again, Moses, it, it doesn't matter. Who are you? Doesn't matter. It's who am I that matters. Moses, you can't speak good? Okay, it doesn't matter. I can. And I can put the words in you, right? His argument is, who made the mouth? Who made the tongue? Who made the other senses that you have? It's, all God's trying to do is say this, is I am in control of all of this, and I will be with you, and you don't have to rely on on your own power or your own skills or your own strength. And before we get to the fifth one, I want to say this is very important for you and I. It's important because we get to see that God is in the business of glorifying his name through us and showing the people that don't know him their need for him through us in unique and amazing ways, none of which we're qualified to do because it's not about us. What am I going to say? That's Moses' objection. Have you ever thought that too in your own personal witness when you're going to try and share the gospel of Jesus with someone? What am I going to say? I'm going to fumble over all of my words. Well, just to encourage you, clearly I do that a lot in front of everyone else, right? Not just one-on-one. -on -one. But what you see again is what God, or what God tells Moses in the Old Testament, the very beginning of the Bible, Jesus is going to tell his followers in Matthew 10, 19. <clears throat> he says this. Let me just give you real quick context. Jesus is, is explaining to them that to follow Jesus means that the world's going to be against you. That's going to mean that you're going to be in opposition, you're going to be thrown in prison, and you're going to, all these things are going to happen, especially in that first century. So Jesus says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Just like God can work in Moses' mouth and does work in Moses' mouth, God has said the same thing to us now. So if you think you have some kind of objection, God, I can't do this because all you're doing is challenging God to go, <laughs> yeah, okay, I can do this through you. I am capable. It's not about you, it's about me. So after these objections, after God has said what he's going to do, he comes to his fifth one. I just don't want to do it. 
Now, I guess at least this point, he's finally honest with himself and with God, is instead of making more and more objections because God just keeps going, no, it doesn't matter. Your objection doesn't matter. And not like in a trivial way, but in a, I'm, I'm going to work through you in this problem. But he goes, I, I just don't want to. Please just send somebody else. Can you think of another prophet in the Old Testament that didn't want to do what God was calling him to do? Maybe a story about a giant fish. Jonah, God goes to Jonah and says, Jonah, you're going to go and you're going to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah goes, nope, I'm not doing it. Jonah runs away. Now, the interesting part there is we learn in chapter 4 of of Jonah, kind of the conclusion to that short book, is that the reason that Jonah doesn't want to is because he doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved and rescued. He doesn't think they deserve rescue. And so God deals a lot more harshly with Jonah than he does here with Moses because when Moses goes, I don't want to do it, send somebody else, he's not saying they don't deserve to be rescued. He's saying, I don't want to be that person. This is the first time, and I think this is significant too, this is the first time that God gets angry with Moses. He's been very patient up till this point. But notice what he does in his anger. Does he just kind of squash him down, or what does he do? It seems like he kind of makes a concession almost, right? Okay. I know Moses, your brother, is very eloquent. I'm going to bring him along with you. In fact, look, he's, 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 he's on his way. That's really what he's saying. Scholars are kind of pointing to the fact that it's probably likely that God actually was going to provide Moses a partner in crime with with Aaron being his right-hand man because Aaron was going to do all kinds of great things as well. But that God was simply going, look, Moses, just trust me. Just trust me. Even when Moses says, I don't want to do it, he says, I'm going to equip it so I'm going to make it so that it can happen. One of the things we learn from Jonah, and one of the things we learn from Moses here, is that God's sovereign plan cannot be wrecked. So God is going to do what God's going to do ultimately in one way or another. And we might, we might make more obstacles for God, but what you see with Jonah and Moses is it wouldn't have it been so much better if they had just said, yes, God, what you want and what you're calling, I, w- I will do. Yes, I'm afraid and I'm scared and I'm not sure how this is all going to work out, but I'm going to trust you rather than making all these objections. The same is true of us. Maybe you find yourself in a very difficult situation where you're like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And then maybe even to the point where you go, I just don't even want to do it. God, make somebody else do this. I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the fill in the blank. Well, God's saying the same thing to us that he said to Moses is, actually, I'm the one in control. I'm the one who can equip. I'm the one who can lead you down this path. I've had the opportunity about three different times this week to have this kind of conversation with people who have said, I would never have expected or even wanted my life to end to this point where it has on that journey. I would have chosen so many other things, but through it all, God has been faithful. And God has called them to purpose. And God has called them to meaning. And that's what God's calling you today as well. And I don't mean that in a sense of when when the nominating committee comes and asks you, you can't say no. That's not my threat of like, man, you just have to get involved with whatever you're asked. My challenge to you is to simply pray and ask God, what, what are you calling me to do? What is purpose? What is my calling? 
Now again, back to this. Is Moses' calling is written much more clearly here for us than your calling and my calling is. At least in the details of it. But in the general sense, the Bible could not be more clear about what your and my calling is. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Doesn't that sum it up perfectly? Now, again, the specifics of that maybe aren't in there. How do we accomplish some of those things that God is calling us to? I don't have the answers for those details. But just in this verse, we see that God's calling us to live for him and holy for him. And I think we live in a culture that has dichotomized spiritual life with regular life. And so we go to church Sundays or we go to Bible study on this day or this time. And and when we're here, when we're talking about faith things, we're very focused on that. But as soon as we go to work or we go to work with our our, our kids at home or our coworkers or whatever the things are that, that we do for a living to, you know, provide for ourselves is we go that's no longer the case now when what what the bible says is very different is every part of your life is to be permeated by jesus and he's going to give you purpose and meaning beyond anything i say this all the time but shayla had an opportunity once um, with a group of women that that they really struggled with going man what's my purpose in life and 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 shayla was like i'm just so glad that we know what our purpose in life is and we tell smonga this all the time and we sum it up really simply for him in Matthew 22. And this isn't like sum it up because it's childlike. This is sum it up because it's simple and easy to remember. Jesus, it's called the great commandment. And he says to do what? Love God and love people. We are to run after God with everything we are, with everything we are, with, every, with who we are. And then we're to love the people that God has put into our lives. Paul sums up the great commandment in another way in Colossians 3.17 where he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, I don't know the specifics of how that looks for each of your lives. But what I do know is that God has said very plainly is I'm going to call you with purpose and with meaning that is far greater than anything you can imagine doing here on the earth now. You could make as much money and have as much fame as you want here on the earth, but in a few years, who's going to remember? I don't remember who it was, but last week I saw a little clip from uh, somebody who was in in the NBA in basketball, and they were talking about whether he would get into the Hall of Fame one day. And he said, well, that'd be a great honor. That would be very cool if I did, but in 200 years, no one will remember anyway. I thought, there's someone who gets it. His legacy is not meant just for now, but his legacy is meant for eternity. And that's what God's called us to, that we would show people in our lives who God is and why Jesus matters to us and, and why we serve him. That even if one person would look at us and go, man, I need that, I need Jesus, and they would come to faith and that that becomes our legacy is that we were faithful to what God called us to. And that means there'll be people in eternity that we get to worship together with, that we had some kind of small, tiny little bit of influence on, but that tiny little bit of influence lasts for eternity. 
This is what God is telling to Moses. It's not just about rescue from slavery. It's not just about getting them out of the land of Egypt. This is about a long-term picture of salvation. This is simply just the first step. So I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what obstacles there are for you. I don't know what hurt and pain and struggle that you're facing. I just know that all of us are facing those things. Are we going to submit and surrender our hearts to God and, and say, God, you are at work, you have purpose, and you have plan, and your will is far greater than my will? Will we learn from people like Moses and Jonah and others in Scripture that God will accomplish what God wants to accomplish? And wouldn't it be so wonderful if we got to be part of that journey? Well, God has called you and he has called me to be a part of that in very unique ways. And so again, my prayer for you is that you would go home, that you as an individual or you as a family would pray and ask, God, what are you, what are you doing in our lives? How are you calling us to live for you here in this place or if you're visiting wherever you might be from? It might sound negative at first when we go, man, it's not about you, it's about God. But I think that's actually the greatest grace that God gives us. Because there's no pressure on me now. I already know he's won. He's going to accomplish his purposes. Now I can just get on board with that. And I can follow him in all things. Last thing I want to say is, even here when God gets angry at Moses... You see God's grace and his mercy. He doesn't just give up on Moses. He goes, okay, fine. I'll give you a buddy to do this with. God is gracious and kind to us as well. And let me say it this way, is that you are not alone in anything you face here because you're part of a church family. That we love and we care for one another. You may be thinking, man, I can't do this on my own. I think that's the point of Scripture. That first, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. But second, he has called a group of people called the church to be with you, to encourage you, to equip you, and so that we can do the same for one another. What has God called you to? Well, the general answer is very simple. Love God and love people. How are we going to accomplish that? That's for you to wrestle with. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words, this, this narrative about Moses and his objections to your call. God, we, there's probably so many more similarities than we care to admit in our own hearts. But may we remember the answers to those objections that God says. It doesn't matter who we are, it matters who you are. It doesn't matter what our purposes are. It matters what your purposes are. It doesn't matter what our insufficiencies are as you are sufficient. That you will be faithful and that you will bring us to certain tasks and to certain responsibilities, not because of our skills, but because of you. And that you will equip us to whatever you have called us for. God, thank you for each person here, those who are part of this local body, the Bant Park Church family. I'm so grateful for each one of them, and I just pray that you would reveal to them 
what you are calling of them to do so that we can work together for the glory of the gospel. For those who are visiting, God, I pray that when they go home, when they go back to the place that you have called them, the mission that you have called them to, that they would see and understand that importance and they would connect with others. God, help us see that we are not to do this on our own, that you are equipping us, that you are giving us purpose and meaning that will last far beyond these next few years on the earth. God, give us an eternal perspective as we consider these things. Go with us today. Thank you for who you are. We are so grateful for your mercy and your grace in our lives.